Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. As always, I'm your host, Josh Nichols. And on today's episode, we are going to be doing something a little bit different. I actually don't think I've ever done this in the four and a half year history of The Mental Golf Show. I'm bringing back my all-time favorite episode of the podcast. It's the original Golf Beneath the Surface episode with Raymond Pryor from back in February 2022. And before you leave and say, I've heard this already, or this is old stuff, this episode had a huge effect on me. It set me on a path toward a much more research and scientifically based approach to the mental game, or as I've come to start rightfully terming it, golf psychology. It had a direct impact on the way that I read and research, coach my players, how I run this podcast, and even tweet. And I've also seen kind of this growing movement, uh, at least on Twitter, of players and thinkers in the game mentioning more and more things like nerves are normal, pressure is normal, discomfort is normal, Uh, not the the cliches that we tend to say of like, yeah, find ways to diminish the nerves, try to find ways to feel better, try to, uh, you know, trust the process, those kind of things. Because underneath all of the symptomatic things that we try to address is our inner experience, our psychology. If you're only addressing the end results, you'll constantly be spinning your wheels. So yes, that kind of surface level psychology has helped players in the past over the years, but ultimately it's going to lead to spinning of your wheels because it doesn't get to the actual uh, issues at the heart of it. So Raymond Pryor's approach to how he works with players in a bottom-up way has changed me in profound ways. And I already know, I can tell, this the type of way that he talks about things has changed others in profound ways. And I think his book and how often people talk about it and how transformational it's been to other people uh, has has been a testament to that. So I hope I do him justice in the way that I talk about the psychological side of the game. And you'll hear us talking about his upcoming book, Golf Beneath the Surface, which, as you know, he released a year after this conversation uh, was originally recorded. It's by far the best golf book I have ever read. So if you haven't read that yet, then you need to right now. Like, go order it. I included the link to the Amazon page in the show notes. You need to read it. I've got a physical copy right there on my shelf. I've got the Kindle uh, downloaded. He actually, after this original conversation was recorded, he sent me a pre-release draft. So I have read through this thing multiple times. And even better, I've read through the references section of like the actual research papers, the academic studies that have been done, the boring stuff. But that's where like, that's where he got all of his information. So that's where I wanted, I want to go to the source. So highly recommend that book. You really, really need to go read it. But before we get into this episode, if you feel like you need one-on-one work on your mental game, that's what I do. Yes, I host this this podcast, but my actual occupation is working with players all over the world on their golf psychology, just like Raymond Pryor does, just like his book discusses, just like we talk about in this this, uh, episode. So if you like this podcast, if you like this episode, if you like these type of concepts, this is the exact type of stuff that I work on with players. So if you'd like to take the next step to improve your mental game, your golf psychology, then send an email to mentalgolfshow at gmail.com, or you can visit my website, joshnicholsgolf.com. It kind of gives you a rundown of like 
how what I do with players, how I coach players, the process I take players through, what players can expect to get out the other end. Or if you don't want to talk to me at all and you'd like a less formal intro to mental coaching, you can take the mental game assessment. It's a 15-minute questionnaire that will give you your mental strengths and your biggest area for mental improvement. It's a great resource to start working on your mental game. And the best part is it's free. We just recently passed the 1,000 assessment taken mark, which is incredibly awesome to say. I cannot even believe that we've gotten to this level. So thank you to everyone who's taken the assessment. The link to everything I've mentioned will be in the show notes of this episode. All right, let's put the cliches aside and learn how to dive deeper into the game and address your psychology. Yeah, just introduce yourself, kind of give give the history of the quick one or two minute. Sure. My name is Raymond Pryor. I am a performance consultant, uh, which means I provide um, performance psychology services. We might call it mental training services to athletes uh, and non-athlete performers in a variety of different fields uh, and performance realms. One of those happens to be a lot of golfers, particularly kind of elite amateur college and professional golfers. Um, and this is your 12 for me of, of doing that work. That's awesome. Yeah. That, uh, I was wondering how, how like into, like into the golf sphere you were, and it sounds like you're pretty heavily is, would you say that that's the bulk of what you do or do you, do you spread out pretty evenly? It's a pretty good chunk. Uh, I think right now um, golf makes up about 50% of my clients then um, kind of spread out over tennis and then in non-sport performance also um, like actors and actresses, singer-songwriters and kind of the pop star field a little bit as well. I do work with athletes who are on team sports but I work with them individually. My expertise is kind of human individual psychology. So leadership and team development and stuff like that is not really my area of expertise. So I leave that to people who are, are really good at it. And there are some people who are very good at it. So if you're talking about more kind of what um, gets people performing in groups, well, you know, you can take the idea of like it, get the flock all flying together. Well, my uh, expertise is like, how come this bird isn't necessarily flying in the way that it wants to fly, which when we do that, typically we, we fly together. So I focus on the birds uh, and let the people who are really good at focusing on the flock do that stuff. Gotcha. Okay. Bird performance consultant. I'll make sure and write that down. Right. Okay. Right in there. All right, cool. So, so you said it's been 12 years. How did you get to year one and then kind of how have you gone over this over these 12 years to get to where you are, to get to be coaching, I'm assuming better and better players. Yeah. Uh, good question. Okay. So I will say, I think the, it kind of started, I was uh, an athlete growing up. Um, I was a pretty elite level soccer player uh, in and out of kind of the U S uh, Olympic development systems played a little bit in college. And in college I was um, on the bench, sir. I guess, resting an injury. And while doing that, asking myself a lot of questions like, why is it that this guy on my team who is just a freak of an athlete doesn't really play very well when it counts? 
And how is it that this guy on our team who kind of isn't a very good soccer player and kind of out of shape in a sport where you kind of need to be in shape, like he plays well all the time. And knowing, you know, having grown up, you know, you got to be focused and confidence is important. And, and but it's like, well, why isn't this guy more focused or confident? And why is this guy always focused and confident? At the same time, I was taking abnormal psychology class uh, in college, just kind of as an elective. And abnormal psychology is this Rolodex of, you know, clinical disorders, the criteria for um, diagnosis, the treatment options, the population frequencies, et cetera, et cetera. And then just at the end of class, the teacher mentioned, oh, and by the way, there are these people who are like top 1% of functioning human beings. And they think and act in ways that are so high functioning by definition, they are abnormal. And kind of those two things happening, you know, pretty close together. My thought was like, why are we not spending all of our time studying these people as much as it's important for us to help people and understand clinical psychology? Like, why aren't we teaching, you know, what I came to know now as performance psychology to everybody so that we can all be more functioning and happier and more fulfilled with our lives? Uh, that led me down a rabbit hole for a while of kind of contacting people and asking questions. And um, it was actually kind of difficult, but I ended up getting connected with a couple of people who were in academia teaching what was sports psychology and then kind of researching this field called positive psychology. Positive psychology is not like positive affirmation psychology. Positive means like, let's study how people are higher functioning, happier, healthier human beings so that we can help people um, do those things. Uh, and then as my body was telling me, soccer's not in the cards for you going forward, bro. Um, I started studying psychology. So I added as a major, as an undergrad. And then I went to um, Ithaca College to study sports psychology um, with Greg Shelley and, and some other people in that program. And then ended up my doctorate at West Virginia University, and they have a very prominent um, sports psychology program. And it was in those grad programs as part of my work. And then also me just wanting to work with athletes that I started working with athletes. Um, how I got into golf was while I was at Ithaca College, long before I had any clue what I was doing, uh, I was working with a college golfer who had reached out. Uh, and he was just really good. He ended up uh, the year after we started working together, we been we worked together for a long time. But uh, shortly after, he won a major, and he said my name on television, and then that kind of opened a lot of doors in golf, probably that I hadn't quite earned yet. Um, and that's how I got into golf. I hadn't started playing golf yet then, hadn't got the bug yet, but I was just really interested in the psychology of it. And uh, from there, things have uh, continued grow and if you and I, as I've gotten better uh, so have most of the clients that I've worked with but I work with people at all levels and a variety of different stuff so um, that is kind of the chronicling of events that has led to where I am now uh, in, mm. in terms of like career right yeah that's interesting uh, you I don't know modestly didn't say who that was would you feel comfortable saying who that was no so it it it's surprising to me sometimes how often people who are doing performance psychology are throwing around their clients' names and talking their successes as if they're um, as if they are their own. 
I'm not okay with that. Um, and, and I know that some people are, I'm not uh, trying to throw them under the bus or say that it's wrong. I don't know what agreements they have with their clients. Anybody who works with me, it is a confidential uh, relationship. It is my job to help provide value to you and not the other way around. I also, you know, you know this when you're working with somebody and their psychology, to me, that is a sacred space. And everybody's entitled to the privacy of their own mind. It's not like your golf swing. When you go out with your golf swing, it's a tangible, physical, seeable thing. Our inner experience isn't. There's a level of vulnerability there that doesn't exist in other places for human beings. I don't, if, if I'm not confidential, I don't know how my clients could ever really trust me with that space. And if they can't really trust me with that space, then the value that I can provide to them is significantly hampered. Uh, and so I don't talk about who my clients are. I don't talk about them when they're not around. I don't use their names for self-promotion um, because I want them to know that when they're working with me, I am working for them and that they can understand. They can tell me anything without it ever going anywhere else. So um, no, I don't talk about my clients. I, I, people ask and that's okay. It's Some people think it's a necessary thing to create credibility. Um I don't, I think you're, if you do good work, it will, that will be credibility enough. And those people will talk about you and you won't have to talk about them, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. It's a much more organic way for it to grow. And yeah. yeah, that's hard. That takes a lot of patience. That takes a lot of, uh, belief in your own, what you're doing, right? It does, but it also just, it's still the, to me, it was the fastest way for me to build my career, even though it might've been slower than trying to use my clients' names for the reason being, again, like trust is built through vulnerability, not certainty. And so if your clients can't be vulnerable with you, they're not going to build that trust. And if they don't trust you, you can't do good work with them. So the more we kind of throw our clients' names around, not only are we doing something that they might not want us to do, but we're also delaying us being able to do the thing, the, the best work we can do for them. So um, for me, that's, that's not something that I'm willing to do. I'm working with a publisher on my book right now, and they would like me to include um, clients' names in the book. And it's not something that I, that I'm willing to do for, for that reason. Um, and that might hurt my chances of getting published with this publisher and maybe not sell the book as well. But my client, my relationship with my clients is not something I'm ever willing to compromise and sacrifice with. That's great. That's, uh, I'm, I, uh, I look up to that. I, I aspire to be more like that for sure. Right on. Um, so I've got a, like a bunch of like mental nitty gritty questions, but I, before we get there and anyone listening, I will get there, I promise. But you mentioned you, as you've improved, so have your players. How have you improved as a coach it's kind of a self selfish question to like how can i improve but how have you improved well i mean part of it improved that i was just learning more while i was in graduate school there's also just kind of the organic learning of failing and figuring out why you failed or why you didn't do a job and when your clients get better what allowed them to get better so there's kind of the just the trial and error fail and succeed and see what happens thing that happens in any craft as you get better then there's the actual um, kind of structured and official studying and education and learning, you know, part of the school process and getting a doctorate in, in something that specific. Honestly, the biggest kick point for me in getting better at my job, you know, without going too much down my own story is there was a point where I actually I finished graduate school 
Um, and I was working with a lot of elite, I mean, Olympians, the players on the LPGA tour and the PGA tour and people in the NBA and the NFL, and they were all doing pretty well. And I was realizing it probably really wasn't because of the stuff I was doing with them. Um, and it wasn't that I was doing bad work, but I was realizing that what really unlocks human ability is not this surface level psychology. And, and I needed to learn more. And I spent the next, well, from that point till now, just crushing reading research and understanding as much about human psychology as I could. It is a vast ocean of research. I can promise you that. Um, and when you really dive into that and put some time into it, and I mean, reading, organizing that information, plotting it out, doing that stuff, like it's real investigative research type reading. Um, you find out there aren't very many areas that really unlock human ability and they're all interrelated, but you have to get into them at a level deep enough that it actually changes the parts of our psychology that unlock the stuff on the surface, right? For example, something like confidence. The surface level psychology approach of confidence is you got to trust, just trust your swing, be confident, like this kind of like, well, whatever the thing that I'm not doing, just tell me to do the opposite stuff. And then these kind of distraction and kind of quote unquote mental skills on the top to be able to do that, like having keywords or, you know, um, something of that nature. And if you find out really about how our brain works, like you realize like that stuff doesn't work very well. What you have to actually do is address the, the thoughts and the core beliefs underneath that are creating or not creating stable confidence and understand what sources those actually come from. Um, and when I really dove into that stuff and really got into it, I started to figure out like, Oh, this is where it actually comes from. And when I started to do that, I got a lot better at my job. My clients also got better, not necessarily faster, but more sustainably, which again is still the fastest route to more sustainable um, growth and, and success and being able to perform under pressure. Uh, and I don't want to make it sound like it's easy. It's some of it's pretty simple, but it isn't easy. Uh, they got a whole lot better and um, not just them getting better, but also, you know, your client uh, pool grows when that happens as well. So the way I got better is I did the work. Mm. Um, and by the way, a doctoral level of understanding, uh, just having a doctorate in performance psychology, if you really want to get to the stuff is probably not enough. Like you got to be a lifelong learner. And I'm not saying you need a doctorate, but you've got to go beyond a doctoral level of understanding. Like you think about like some of the swing coaches I see on, on the range week to week, like the level of understanding and expertise they have on the golf swing or the putting stroke is beyond doctoral, even though they don't necessarily have doctorates in it. That's the type of stuff that if we're going to be providing psychological services or mental training to performers, whether it's golf or not, that's the standard mm. in my opinion. Yeah. So Googling how to have a growth mindset and reading the top article by Carol Dweck is not enough. <laughs> no. I mean, Carol, by the way, that's a, that go, that is psychology below the surface a growth mindset, because that is a core belief about where your ability comes from and how it's developed. You it's a really important for everybody to understand that would be required reading if, if I was you know president for a day. But just having understanding of what it is, not enough. 
got to understand, first of all, where it comes from, how it's developed, how to change it, and also a couple of other related things because the core belief about where your ability comes from is a core belief. So not only do you need to understand that core belief, you got to understand how core beliefs are also developed and changed. So just understand, hey, you, hey, you got to have a growth mindset. Okay. Well, if you've got somebody who's just crazy talented and has never had to actually work to develop their talent and then therefore never works to have to develop that belief, the idea that you're going to go, just, just believe that your uh, ability comes from hard work and effort over time and not because you're just blessed with some magic wand, that's a, that's a big leap for a lot of people. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's good. Uh, again, aspirational for me. You're, 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 you're spewing truth. This is good early on. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into some, some actual mental questions that are coaching related, like you as a coach to players, how would you address this situation? Um, I, I don't want it to make it like you're a circus monkey that I'm saying, give me answer. It's not like that, but if you are approached by players in certain situations and they, they come to you with this maybe surface level issue, how do you dig deeper to get at the root of it? And that's what I want to know. Okay. Sure. Yeah, I'll do my best. No problem. Sure. So, so the way I discovered you was from the be the right club today podcast. Uh, I'm assuming several, you know, dozens of, or hundreds of people discovered you that way, maybe even thousands because it was amazing. And, um, I think a lot of people echoed Hal's, um, I don't know, like he, his awe for what you were saying. It was just awesome. It was awesome. So I hope you've got a lot of good feedback from that one, but it, uh, you deserved it if you did. Yeah. It's been a nice, um, a little, like a lot of people have reached out on Twitter and, and via email. And I think, um, one of the things that you said, and, and it was awesome to talk with those guys. And I think what Hal, what happened for Hal and what happened for a lot of listeners was I was able to articulate something that they were directly experiencing in a way that either helped them understand it better or took, you know, kind of an aha moment. Aha moment happens for us as human beings. Like it's, we think it's kind of this mysterious thing. It's kind of not. We learn in two different ways, like especially behaviors, including mental behaviors, which is there's this um, declarative learning, which is another way of saying conceptual learning. I understand something as an idea and as a concept. And then we also understand things like procedurally, which is a fancy way of saying through our direct experiences, like I have experienced this. And they don't always match up at the same time. And so when maybe you understand something conceptually and then it, you actually experience it, you go, oh, aha, there it is. Or you have done something directly for a long time, but you haven't been really able to make words of the concepts behind it. Then though, if those click in, then again, it's kind of this aha moment, like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. And I think that's kind of what happened for Hal and a couple of people. And that's great. And that's, again, if you go below the surface to understanding, like, what are the actual mechanisms going on underneath? And I can put meaningful words behind them. You get those two things to click. And when those two things click, that's when you start to get um, understanding and wisdom and then more sustainable change, or at least the for sustainable change. So it was awesome that Hal was able to put those together. We had a great conversation and a lot of people got that and that's less on me being a genius and more just me knowing the words that they are already experiencing. Yeah. It's like, um, myself and others listening and how it's like, I'm finally heard. Like someone is finally hearing my experience because he's explaining it back to me in ways I've never heard. So that's, 
That's awesome. We're talking like counseling and therapeutic language. You're talking about validation, right? Empathy, which is like somebody understands my experience and they put words to it. So I feel understood. That's a really important part of um, being able to communicate with people and help people get better is helping understand their efforts and, and what, what it is they're experiencing. So, yeah. Was there something specifically that stood out to you in that, that kind of uh, clicked in that way? Yeah. So the, the way you talked about, I think you phrased it, the window of success, I think is how you described it. Um, and, and I, as soon as I heard it, I started trying to use that in my own um, sessions with players, even though, it could be risky now that we're talking. It's like, I don't maybe get at the depth of what it is, but um, maybe you could explain it, uh, what you mean by window of success or the concept surrounding it. Um, and then what well, I have questions about it, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think a really good place to start when it comes to talking about our margin of perceived success is just understanding the learning curve. So the learning curve, we are all on a learning curve in a variety of different things. But if, in this case, let's just talk it in the, in terms of golf. So the learning curve goes from steep to flat for everybody. And it might have a different uh, arc to it. Some are really, really, really steep for a long time and then try to level off. Some of them level off sooner. But in essence, it's going from steep to flat, even though it is always increasing. Now, the learning curve is essentially like how good we can get at something over time and the amount of effort we have to apply to be able to do that. So as we get up, get better at something and we climb the learning curve, it takes more time and more effort to make smaller and smaller increments of progress, even if you're really good at something. So for a golfer, think about how much time and effort it takes to go from shooting 120 to 100, and then how much more time it takes to go from shooting 100 to a 90. Etc. Etc. And now you're talking about the best players in the world, like they're investing outrageous amounts of time and effort to go from shooting 70 to 69. Like if you shoot a 69 on either tour, LPGA or PGA, and you average that throughout, you're going to win the Barton Trophy, and you're going to have the lowest scoring average on the tours, right? Um, and so as we go up, that what that means is we actually fail more than we succeed. The better we get at something. And that is not just perceived. There's objectively speaking, like you're going to fail relative to your skill level. And so as we get better, the window for success gets smaller and smaller. You have to be better and execute better and more timely in order to get the things that we consider success. And so if we're talking about something like fear of failure or fear of success, which is fear of success is just fear of being able to maintain success. Part of the reason we fear success is because as we get up this learning curve, if we fear failure, the window is already smaller. And so if failure is something threatening to us, being successful is also threatening to us because that window for what we can tell ourselves is successful. Not only is it already smaller, we would then make it smaller because we have, in essence, moved farther up the learning curve. Right. And so if missing that window is something I perceive as threatening. I'm going to try to keep that window as wide open as possible, right? And so below the surface, we have to look at the core beliefs and the thought patterns that are creating that fear of failure and also address some of the misconceptions about failure. Like failure is required to be successful. And if you want to climb the learning curve, more failure is required to take more successful steps, right? So if I only needed to fail a couple of times to learn how to hit a couple of different shots when I was 15, if you're 25 and on tour, 
you might go a year without winning a tournament just to have a couple chances to try to win. You might lose in two playoffs before you are able to pull it off. And so if we are fearful of that narrowing window and we see it as a bad thing rather than interpreting it as something that goes, I'm actually getting better and I'm getting closer to the things that are successful, it can be a really scary place for us. And so if we don't address our relationship with that window, uh, it, it can it can be the reason that we hold ourselves back. So the the way to make the window bigger, I mean, it, it gets smaller, like you said, as you get better. But the way to make it bigger is to address your relationship with failure. Is that basically the summation of it? Yeah, I think what's important with that is we don't try to make it bigger. You have to address your relationship with, no, you're not trying to make it bigger. Now, we can interpret events as more positive or more negative. And that ratio that we perceive positive to negative events in our lives is really important. Uh, matter of fact, like vital to our health at times. But really what you're saying is when I miss this window, what does it mean to me? And it's not, oh, I'll never miss this, miss this window or I'll just move the goalposts, right? Because that would be lowering your standards. People don't typically move up the learning curve by lowering their standards, Right. It's addressing when I miss this window, which I will at times and will miss it when I'm trying my best, that what does that actually mean to me? And is that perceived in a threatening way or in a way that is somewhat uncomfortable, maybe even kind of uncomfortable for a while, but not something that actually um, my brain or I internally perceive as a threat that is going to, to destabilize my confidence, undermine my intrinsic motivation. And kind of in the long run, be something that I'm going to be worried about in the future because you know the human brain's not that complicated. When there's something that we really think is worthy of being worried about in the future, that's going to draw our focus away, and we have a really difficult time being present. So it's not trying to change the window; it's making sure that your relationship with when you change, when you miss that window, isn't something that is um, derailing. Right? It can still be a positive event. And so here we're talking about like the fixed mindset. The number one fear of a fixed mindset is if I give my very best effort and I still miss this window, the threat to them is it means I'm not what I think I am, which is special or talented or gifted or and fill in whatever you know fixed trait you put in there. That's a really threatening proposition for somebody who has been given evidence their entire life to support that idea. And then all of a sudden, as they get better and better and they reach the point on the learning curve where their current ability is not enough to move them forward, they're going to miss that window. And then when they tell themselves, well, I guess I'm never supposed to hit this window ever again, that's a pretty threatening proposition for anybody. And so if we don't address that, and that would be the relationship with the window, um, you're in trouble. And telling yourself that the window is wide open and it will always be wide open has no credibility to it because it's not. Like the margin, there are actual margins for error in our performance. And the better you get and the more competitive levels you compete at, the smaller they get. That's how it works. And it's supposed to. You know, if you win a gold medal, you are the best in the world that day. If you win a major, you are the best golfer in the world that day. It, that's important for competition. We need those tiny margins for error to push human performance and to push the limits of ourselves and our sport. Trying to convince ourselves that the window is wide open is not how we typically move up the learning curve. So, so telling, telling a, telling yourself or a coach telling a player, 
it's just like any other tournament. It's just, it's just, uh, it's not a major. It's just another 18 holes. It's just, you, you, it's a drive. It's a five iron. It's a putter. Is that, is that false? I mean, is that not helpful? If it's actually authentic to that player. I mean, imagine you were on the driving, like how many people have a difficulty going from the first, from the driving range to the first tee. If I told you, Hey, it's still just a driver. It's not just a driver because they're actual, the consequences are different. If you win a major, your life is going to change, right? Sometimes in good ways and sometimes in not. And if you ask any golfer on the planet, you could only win one tournament. Would you rather win a major or not major? It's not the same. Now, by the way, the same things you do to play good golf will apply when you're playing in a major, especially if you can do them consistently in more difficult conditions. But telling yourself, oh, this is exactly the same as playing a practice round or whatever. It's not. And again, that's the kind of the disconnect there would be between here's my declarative understanding. My conceptual understanding is the same things happen, but my direct experience is telling me the exact opposite. And for us as human beings, we gravitate toward our direct experience for more credibility than conceptually. Like conceptually, we understand make good golf swings, golf ball will go where it goes. Directly, though, our body's telling us, don't you dare screw this up. And those are, you have to address both of those. So if your direct experience is telling you this is not the same, but I just keep telling myself it's the same, there's a disconnect between those two. Our inner dialogue has no credibility to it. And that's where stable confidence comes from, which is a credible inner dialogue. When I tell myself it's meaningful to me, it makes sense, and I actually believe it. Without that, uh, yeah. So, I mean, if that athlete actually believes that, great. But asking them, like, by the way, what are you feeling right now about this is probably a better starting point than trying to tell somebody, oh, it's just the same. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's just a bear in the woods. Don't worry about it. It's what, Yeah, right. It's just the saber-toothed tiger. Like, don't worry about that. Like, our brain is literally designed to worry about that. Mm. So. Well said. So then, in that case, should importance of an event change your approach, change the way you think, change the way you strategize, uh, change how should an, an importance of an event change you and change your mental approach? Yeah, I think that's a little bit individualized to people. You know, for example, physically, for example, um, when athletes are preparing for a major, the preparation might be different because they're trying to make sure their body is as close to optimal as they can get for that. I think for our psychology, when we're regardless of how important the event is, the same things will allow us to play freely. They just might be more difficult to do because the tangible results of that tend to be more meaningful to us, right? So whether you're playing in a major or a practice round, if you can be grounded in the present moment more often, that's going to create space for you to play. And by the way, if you can explain in a credible but optimistic way, the results of whatever might happen, like almost asking yourself, what's the worst case scenario? And am I willing to live with that? That decreases the amount of threat in the future, which gives us um, the acceptance needed to have stable confidence. And what's more difficult in that in things that are more important to us is that is harder to come by situationally, right? you're playing a practice round and the results don't matter, it's easier for us to have acceptance of the results because they aren't important to us and we don't extrapolate them to other things. When we're playing in meaningful golf tournaments or majors or whatever, 
and by we, I mean we, the royal we, not you and I, uh, the situation won't allow us to do that. Because situation, we have decided these things are more important than these things. And so we have to generate that acceptance on our own. That acceptance doesn't come from pretending that everything's going to work out. And by the way, I don't care about the results and I will be happy with anything. It comes from going, what's the worst case scenario? But if that's the worst case scenario, first of all, how long term is it? How widespread are those consequences? And for us, really important, how personal are they? And if we look at those and go, okay, I could live with that. Then that gives us the ability to go, hey, go try to go do your thing for the simple reason that we are not protecting ourselves from a future that we don't want. That is what provides us the ability to go pursue the things that we do want more freely, which is why stable confidence is built on space and acceptance, not comfort and certainty. So when you hear commentators on TV like, he's out of his comfort zone, your comfort zone is irrelevant at that point. Everybody's out of their comfort zone playing under pressure. It might be familiar to them, but it's not necessarily comfortable. And nobody has a sense of certainty that they can rely on in and out. Like the bottom line is the future is always uncertain. And we know that sometimes we get feelings of uncertainty, like, oh, I just knew I was going to make that putt. But those are fleeting. And if you need those for four days to to win a a major, your confidence is not going to be stable enough. Because at some point, you're going to be uncomfortable. And you are also going to be faced with immense uncertainty. And so um, we have to address those in ways that are credible so that when we tell ourselves, hey, go play, do your thing, it's not trying to cover up underneath going, you better not. Right. So a, a player a player comes to me and says, no, I need to play well in this event or I need to play well this summer or this semester in order to get recruited to go to college. That's they're seeing the the consequence as i mean in some ways it is pervasive and personal and all of these things how would you address that there's always some level of permanent pervasive and personal consequences to anything we do we have to understand that if we are going to sign up to do something there is a level of risk there's financial risk emotional risk social risk right some in some things physical risk involved And we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to accept that? For the situations that are already pretty constricting and have some longer term, more pervasive and some personal consequences, we can't pretend those don't exist if we're going to talk to ourselves credibly. The question becomes, Are if you're going to do this, so the first question is like, are you willing to risk the fact that it might not work out the way that you want to? And then the second is, If that's the case, that you have this big of margin for error with these types of consequences, how do you want to do this anyway? Do you want to do this uh, in a way that's going to give you the best chance of doing it and probably make it a relatively enjoyable experience? Because playing golf freely, even if we don't get the results we want, is still enjoyable. It might not be maximum enjoyment if we don't get the result we want, still a really fulfilling and empowering experience. And so athletes, like I'm working with a bunch of Olympians, Winter Olympics, like they literally, they've been training for years, some of them for like 30 seconds, it's over. And so if the window to be quote unquote successful, however you define it, is 30 seconds after eight to four years of training, and that's the window, that small, how do you want to do it in that window? Do you want to be worried about what's going to happen at the end of it? 
Do you want to be grounded in it? Like, how do you actually want to do that knowing that you cannot guarantee the results at the end? And if we consider those questions, then we don't have to answer them during because all these kind of questions that I ask athletes aren't me being super smart. It's these are the questions that competition brings out of us, whether we want to or not. And if we address them beforehand and come to terms with them, not in a way that creates comfort, certainty, or absolute satisfaction or whatever, then we don't have to answer them while we're playing. Because when we do it while we're playing, you know, hence like overthinking, like it's pretty difficult to play golf, having like an existential conversation with yourself about what failure means to you. I'm kind of summarizing the question is, okay, so that is the scenario. How do you want to do it anyway? All right, everyone, hope you enjoyed this re-release episode with Raymond Pryor. I know this conversation was formative for me, and I hope it has been for you too. If you liked this episode, you'll probably like the other three appearances Raymond Pryor has been on the podcast. So open your podcast app, go to the search button, search for Raymond Pryor, and listen to anything that comes up because he's great every time. It doesn't even have to be the Mental Golf Show, although you will see the other three results uh, with Raymond Pryor. There were two myth debunking episodes, and then there was one called uh, the new psychology of golf or I can't I can't actually remember the title which is a little embarrassing of my own podcast but there is I think it's the new science of golf psychology something like that so I highly recommend those other three episodes he is he just spews truth every single time he talks so I love it and as I always mention at the end of these episodes what you've heard isn't therapy it's meant for information and entertainment purposes only If you feel like you need personal help on some deeper things you're going through, I encourage you to go talk to a licensed professional. But on the golf psychology front, if you feel like what you've heard doesn't quite cut it and you'd like to work one-on-one with someone, I'm a golf psychology coach. Dr. Pryor is a golf psychology coach, or he's a performance uh, consultant who works with a lot of golfers. I work with players all over the world on improving their minds so they can improve their performance on the course. So if you'd like to get in touch with Dr. Pryor, I've got his information in the show notes. Or if you'd like to get in touch with me, feel free to send an email to mentalgolfshow at gmail.com or you can visit my website, joshnicholsgolf.com. Or again, if you'd like a less formal intro where you don't even need to talk to me, you could take the mental game assessment. It's a 15-minute questionnaire that will give you your mental strengths and areas for improvement. And again, the best part is it's free. The link to everything I've mentioned will be in the show notes of this episode. All right, thanks again to everybody who listens to The Mental Golf Show. Whether you're new here or you've been here since day one, I really appreciate the community that you have been a part of building. If you've learned something on this episode or any episode, go subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I know thousands of you listen to this podcast, but not thousands of you have left reviews. So something's going on there. So when you get there, maybe mention the biggest thing that you've learned listening to the podcast, of course, underneath those five stars that you leave. And I would love it if you shared this episode with a friend who maybe spews cliches every time they play. Something like one shot at a time, or just trust the process, or my personal favorite, trees are 90% air. I don't even think that one's related other than it's just not true. Okay, thanks for listening to The Mental Golf Show. I'm Josh Nichols, and I will catch you guys next time. Thank you.